0: This is Space Time Series 25, Episode 38, for broadcast on the 30th of March, 2022. Coming up on Space Time, strange happenings aboard the International Space Station, Artemis crawling towards launch, and Ingenuity completes its 22nd flight on the red planet Mars. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Three Russian cosmonauts have surprised the world, emerging from their newly arrived Soyuz capsule aboard the International Space Station, wearing bright yellow and blue flight suits reminiscent of the colours of the Ukrainian flag. The three were the first new arrivals aboard the orbiting outpost since Russia invaded the Ukraine, triggering tit-for-tat sanctions between Moscow and the West, which have also halted most space programs involving Russia. The Trier's Soyuz MS 21 capsule docked with the orbiting outpost after a three hour, two orbit fast rendezvous flight from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan.
2: The fuel lines and other elements of the rocket engines are being purged with nitrogen to fireproof them by removing vapors of fuel and oxidizer. Coming up shortly, the booster's fuel tanks will be pressurized for flight.
0: Pressurization
3: initiated. Copy. We can see commander and flight engineer on our uh, screens. From, uh, and the booster module. fuel
2: tanks are now being pressurized for flight, and the ground propellant feed has now been terminated. So we use now on internal power.
3: <laughs> Vehicle to
2: internal power. Copy. First umbilical tower has separated from the booster, and we have auto sequence start.
3: Auto sequence initiated. Zajiganie. Ignition. Second launch command has been issued. Engine turbo-prompt at flight speed, engine that makes no thrust, and liftoff. Liftoff of the Soyuz MS 21. So let's work in space together parameters of the launch vehicle are nominal is well
2: on board and 30 seconds into flight everything going as planned at this second the International Space Station is flying, is flying directly parameters parameters over the Baikonur the cosmodrome the velocity is over
3: 1100 miles per hour nominal everything is put on board the crew uh, is feeling well. 19 seconds until the reactor of this uh, first and second stage of firing uh, nominally uh, everything is stable. Copy. Continuing to hear good calls. Everything proceeding nominally. Stage first stage separation.
2: And the 4 four strap-on boosters have been jettisoned.
3: The predecessor ignition of the stage flight. The thrustors of the second stage are firing nominally. Cut jettisoning of the launch shroud. So we
2: use MS21 as it continues its climb uphill. Everything proceeding as planned.
3: 150 seconds into the flight uh, The uh, vehicle is stable Copy, everything is good on board All the parameters are nominal Copy 210,
4: 10 seconds into the flight
2: This stage will continue to burn Until the 4 minute 43 second mark into flight Second stage engine performing as expected
4: Standing by for uh, GK2 uh, Second state, stage engine cut off command the two Main uh, engine cutoff command confirmed, a second stage separation confirmed. The core booster now separating.
2: Three hundred and ten seconds. Soyuz now being propelled by the single engine of the Soyuz third stage.
4: Copy. Everything is fine on board, and the crew is feeling great. normal. Uh, Onboard system parameters are nominal. Copying. Uh, 360 seconds into the flight. beach uh, yaw, and roll parameters are nominal. Uh, and the crew is feeling excellent.
2: Soyuz now traveling over 11,000 miles per hour. The next milestone that we'll be looking towards is third stage cutoff and separation, slated to occur at the eight minute, 46 second mark into today's flight. We're now seven minutes and 20 seconds into the launch of Soyuz MS-21, headed to the International Space Station with three Russian cosmonauts on board. Now coming up on third stage shutdown.
4: Getting ready for uh, third stage separation. Five hundred thirty. seconds into the flight. There's contact the отделения. Stage uh, three separation is confirmed. Congratulations on the successful uh, orbital insertion, and uh, I will.
2: And we have confirmation of spacecraft separation.
4: This is. Uh, Moscow.
2: The Soyuz capsule and crew inside now are safely in orbit and the spacecraft is automatically executing its pre-programmed commands to deploy the antennas and solar arrays. Uh, Jones, this is NCC Moscow. How do you read me? And we do have confirmation of solar array and antenna deploy.
0: Video initially showed the Soyuz crew during their final approach and docking maneuvers wearing their usual blue flight suits. But once docked and pressurization equaled with seals checked, They shocked everybody by emerging from the capsule dressed in the new yellow and blue apparel.
2: The Soyuz MS-21 spacecraft docked to the pre module. Roscosmos cosmonaut Anton Shkaplerov working through procedures to open the hatch on his end. He's currently inside the Nauka module of the International Space Station. Both Anton Shkaplerov and Piotr Dubrov inside the hatch, as well as European Space Agency astronaut Matthias Maurer. They're working together to open up the hatch. And the hatch is open. All so this is right. I guess I can hear until now. Go. That's right. The hatch is open. Hatch opening occurring at 4:48 p.m.
4: All right. Hooray. All right. Go for it. All right. Go ahead. Go first, but be careful. What was that? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm gonna uh, finish up here.
2: First through the hatch was Korsakov. Yes, Next see up see is Denise Matviyov.
4: Uh, yes. So, so are we going to uh, transfer, and I'm signing off. Correct? Yes. Sounds good. Your go. All right.
2: And all three Russian cosmonauts are now aboard the International Space Station.
0: When asked about their fashion choice, the cosmonauts insisted there was no message intended. Sometimes yellow is just yellow. They claim the crew get to pick their own colours for the jumpsuit, and when it was their turn to pick a colour, they saw there was a lot of yellow material left behind, so they simply chose to use that. Tensions between Moscow and the West have been steadily growing worse ever since the 2008 Russian conflict in Georgia, and they began to accelerate even more quickly following the 2014 Russian invasion and then annexation of the Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine and scenes of civilians being slaughtered have triggered the biggest response yet from the West, which has included crippling sanctions and growing arms shipments to Ukraine. The European Space Agency has cancelled all joint space operations with Russia, including an Ariane Space Soyuz flight, which was slated to launch this week from isis Kourou spaceport in French Guiana. Soyuz began flying Ariane Space missions from Kourou in 2011, replacing the Ariane 4's Ariane Space's medium-lift launch vehicle. Moscow's now recalled all 87 Russian personnel working at the European-owned Kourou launch complex, while ESA's now looking at rescheduling Soyuz payloads onto additional Ariane 6 and Vega C flights. Moscow's also switched off their telescope aboard the joint Russian-German Spectre-RG high-energy space telescope, destroying years of scientific research. Launched in July 2019, Spectre-RG is located 1.5 million kilometers from Earth in the Lagrange L2 position. That's a gravitational well on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. Specter rgs instruments include the German Erosa X-ray Space Telescope built by the Max Planck Institute and the Russian ART-XC High Energy X-ray Telescope, which is designed to detect supermassive black holes. Work on the joint European-Russian ExoMars mission to the Red Planet, which was slated to launch in September, has also been cancelled. The mission, which includes the European Rosalind Franklin Mars rover, was to fly on a Russian proton rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The mission had already been delayed two years by ongoing technical problems and by the COVID-19 pandemic. And any further delays will mean another two-year wait because of the need for a favourable Earth-Mars orbital alignment. Also scrubbed was the launch of a Soyuz from Baikonur last week, carrying OneWeb's latest batch of 36 broadband internet satellites. Moscow demanded the satellites not be used for military purposes and that the British government withdraw from its involvement with the OneWeb Corporation. Images showed American, Japanese and British flags being literally scraped off the Soyuz payload fairing. In response, the British government issued a statement saying it no longer made any sense to launch on any Russian rockets. Making matters even worse is nationalist Dmitry Rogozin, an enthusiastic supporter of the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia. He was appointed as head of Roscosmos in 2018 by his longtime friend and colleague, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Rogozin's retaliated to the sanctions by threatening to end cooperation on the International Space Station and ceasing to boost its orbit using Progress cargo ships. See, even at altitudes of 400 kilometres, which is where the space station orbits, there's still enough rarefied atmospheric molecules to cause some degree of drag on the space station. And that, in turn, causes its orbit to slowly decay. Space shuttles were originally used to regularly boost the space station back into a higher orbit every time they docked, and that task was taken over by Russian Progress cargo ships once the space shuttle was retired in 2011. Rogozin also threatened not to return NASA astronauts to Earth aboard Soyuz spacecraft in retaliation for the sanctions. But so far he's not followed through on either of those threats, and the space station's operations appear to be normal. However, Rogozin has halted delivery of any further Russian-built RD-180 rocket engines to the United States. Since the mid-1990s, some 122 RD-180 engines have been ordered from Russia for use on American Atlas V rockets by the United Launch Alliance. So far, 98 of them have been used, with a further 24 waiting to be installed. However, Russia will now no longer supply these engines nor will they maintain in service the remaining ones yet to be used. As for the yellow Russian flight suits on the latest crew aboard the space station, it's still not known what the real political ramifications of that were, if any. Normally, cosmonaut activities are choreographed very carefully by political powers. So I guess we will never know whether or not this was really a message of support or simply a coincidence. But it is interesting. This is Space Time. Still to come, Artemis 1 crawling towards launch and Ingenuity completes its 22nd flight on the red planet Mars. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Last week's historic rollout of the giant space launch system Artemis 1 moon rocket would not have been possible without one of the unsung heroes of NASA's manned space program, its giant crawler transporters. Formerly known as the Missile Crawler Transport Facilities, these 40-metre-long 2,722-tonne mobile platforms are used to transport the world's largest rockets from NASA's Vehicle Assembly Building at the Kennedy Space Center along the 6.5-kilometre track Space Launch Complex 39 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida. The system's very different from the Russian system of using giant railroad vehicles known as Schnabel wagons, all by locomotives to transport Soyuz and Proton rockets horizontally to the launch pad, where they're then raised into a vertical position. When NASA built their two crawler transporters in the 1960s, they were the largest self-propelled land vehicles in the world. They were specifically designed to carry the Saturn 1B and even bigger Saturn V Apollo moon rockets. Much of their technology was based on the heavy haul railroad and mining industry. Each transporter is mounted on eight caterpillar-like crawler tracks, similar to those employed on some of the world's biggest bucket wheel and dragline excavators. Each track has 57 shoes, and each shoe weighs 900 kilograms. The cooler transporters are each powered by two 2050 kilowatt, that's 2750 horsepower, Alco 251C V16 diesel engines. They're the same engines used in Alco Century C628 mainline diesel locomotives. The crawlers are also equipped with a further two 794 kilowatt, that's 1,065 horsepower, auxiliary engines, which drive generators supplying power for all auxiliary systems, including jacking, steering, lighting, and ventilation. Following the end of the Apollo program, they were rebuilt during the late 1970s to transport the space shuttles to pads 39A and B between 1981 and 2011. Their latest reincarnation has seen one of the two units, CT-2, rebuilt again, this time to haul the huge Artemis Space Launch System, or SLS, the world's largest rocket. The two crawler transporters were added to the National Register of Historic Places in the year 2000. One of the many milestones in the lead-up to the launch of Artemis I was the spectacle of the rollout, as the giant crawler-transporter carried the SLS rocket, complete with its Orion capsule and European service module from the vehicle assembly building onto launch pad 39B. ECTV spoke to NASA's John Giles about the crawler transporter and the adaptions made to this historic machinery to handle the SLS.
1: Hi, I'm Kelsey Brennan-Wessels and the European Space Agency, together with our partners at NASA, are getting ready to return to the Moon. We are in the United States, in the sunny state of Florida, at Kennedy Space Center. ESA is playing a key role in NASA's Artemis program, which will bring astronauts back to the Moon, The European Service Module, or ESM, will provide propulsion, power and thermal control for the Orion spacecraft. When the first Artemis mission launches on an SLS rocket this year, ESM-1 will guide an empty spacecraft into orbit around the Moon in a test of what's to come. There are countless steps in this journey to the moon, but one of the major moves before launch is getting the hardware from the Vehicle Assembly Building to Launch Pad 39B.
5: This is crawler number two here. She was built back in the 1960s, mid-1960s for the Apollo program. And she's handled Apollo and Skylab and Shuttle. And now she's gonna be the crawler of the future for SLS. And she's been modified over the years for the different programs. And for SLS, we've had to modify her, we've had to increase her carrying capacity by 50%. So we spent a few years doing that. And then the last few years, we've been getting her ready by taking the mobile launcher back and forth to the pad and doing a few other tests around here. She herself, I know this is rude, but she weighs 6.75 million pounds. We'll carry a mobile launcher that weighs 11.4 million pounds and then we'll carry the SLS launch vehicle which is somewhere around 3.5 million pounds. So add that all up and and that's what we'll carry back and forth to the pad. And then with each mission, as the launch vehicles get bigger, heavier, bigger second stages and uh, bigger cargoes, bigger solids, the weight just keeps going up. Our our speed to take SLS to the pad is going to be 0.83 miles an hour. That's the speed they determine will give the rocket the smoothest ride.
1: The distance from the vehicle assembly building to launch pad 39B is about 4.2 miles, or 6.75 kilometers.
5: People don't realize it, but what we're carrying does move around a lot. So those, those gel cylinders we have have the great task of keeping everything level. We actually have a We have um, engineers that are trained to keep it level, and then we have a system that also works to keep it level. So as we roll to the pad in the middle of the night, we'll get there, we'll roll up the pad slope, we'll drop it off, and then we will roll back down to the bottom of the hill. And that's where we'll sit, right outside the gate, and they'll start performing tests, and we'll stay there, for as long as they need us to. And it's usually until a day or two before launch, until they, they know everything's in great shape and they're ready to launch. And then we'll roll back to what's called the uh, the MSS Park site and we'll stay there. And so if, if they need us for anything, it's just a few hour ride to get back to the pad.
1: As John mentioned, the crawler has a history in transporting lunar missions, but adaptations were needed to prepare for this one.
5: They were originally designed for 12 million pounds. Uh, The requirement for SLS was 18 million pounds, so it's a 50% increase. Each corner, we call them a truck. So the truck consists of two of these tread belts, 57 shoes each. Each shoe weighs uh, over 2,000 pounds, and they roll across 11 very large roller bearings underneath that we replaced when, when we modded this. So we made them bigger and stronger so they could handle the extra weight. Right behind here, we have a gearbox. There's 16 of them on the crawler. They were all rebuilt. Uh, all the bearings were replaced in them. And then that is connected to the chassis by four very large hydraulic cylinders that we call GELs. Stands for jacking, equalization, and leveling. Uh, each, each one of these trucks can turn. We can rotate them. They have. S- four steering cylinders that rotates them. They can turn, we, we try to keep it within six degrees. And then we need that, that turning radius so we can get around the turns uh, from here to the VAB and out to the pad. We're looking down at one of the trucks, one of the big steering arms. You see all the electrical cabling that goes into the motors that turn the gearboxes and propel us. And then this large thing right here is a steering cylinder. There's four of those attached to each truck. Each truck weighs a million pounds, so that's why it takes four of these large cylinders to turn it. And then right behind us here, we have two of the jacking equalization and leveling cylinders. These are very large hydraulic cylinders. They go down all the way into the base of the truck. They're, I believe, I want to say 20 20 feet deep, and they can extend up to 26 feet. There's four of these on each corner, and they're, they're bigger than the original ones so they can handle the extra weight. So inside here, you have one of the, the cabs where the drivers will be. There will be at least two in there. One is actually driving and one is sitting in the sort of the co-pilot's chair. Everybody is on radios during the roll. Everybody's connected to each other. Everybody can talk to each other. The drivers, the engineers, the mechanics, the technicians, they're all in contact. They're all on the same net. We have a fuel tank here, 2,500 gallons of diesel fuel. We have two fuel tanks, one on this end, one on the other end, so we carry 5,000 gallons of, of fuel with us at all times. Our goal is to never stop while we're rolling. We have bathrooms on board, microwaves. You eat your lunch, your dinner, your breakfast, everything is on board here. We try not to stop. If we stop, something probably didn't go the way we had it planned and we gotta fix something. It's a wonderful piece of machinery. If you're an engineer, this is this is the greatest thing ever. That report
0: from ESA TV. Sometime during the next month, the SLS will undertake a fully fueled dress rehearsal for the long-awaited Artemis 1 mission. Itemus 1, which is now slated for some time in May, will carry an unmanned Orion capsule around the Moon and beyond and then back to Earth again. It will test the performance of the SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft and systems. Orion will fly further than any spacecraft built for humans has ever flown before. In fact, it will travel some 461,000 kilometres from Earth, thousands of kilometres beyond the Moon, over the course of its three-week mission. This space-time. Still to come, NASA's Mars Ingenuity helicopter completes its 22nd flight over the surface of the Red Planet. And later in the science report, a new species of ankylosaur dinosaur discovered in China. All that and more still to come on Space Time. NASA's Mars Ingenuity helicopter has completed its 22nd flight over the surface of the Red Planet. The 101.4-second flight reached altitudes of over 10.5 metres. The six-wheeled car-sized Perseverance rover, with a helicopter tucked neatly inside its undercarriage, landed in Jezero Crater in February 2021, 13 months ago. The primary mission of Perseverance is to search for signs of past microbial life on Mars and study the crater's geology, collecting samples for eventual return to Earth. Ingenuity was meant purely as a proof-of-concept demonstrator, designed to fly just five flights on the Red Planet's surface. It's now flown some 22 flights covering almost 5 kilometres and has logged more than 40 minutes of flight time. The next phase of the mission will see the two spacecraft, Ingenuity and Perseverance, travel to a nearby ancient dried-up river delta which contains vast deposits of sediment which have been washed down from further upstream billions of years ago. Scientists believe this will be one of the best places to search for signs of past microbial life on Mars. That is, of course, assuming it ever existed. This is Space Time. time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that low vitamin C levels are linked to cognitive impairment in older people. The findings reported in the journal Antioxidants looked at 91 older hospitalized Australians. The authors showed that cognitive function scores were significantly lower among patients who were vitamin C deficient. The work by scientists from Flinders University showed that after adjustment for other factors, vitamin C deficiency was almost three times more likely to be associated with cognitive impairment. A new study has concluded that the iconic extinct giant predator shark megalodon most likely grew to larger sizes in cooler environments than in warmer ones. Scientists examined estimated body size of the giant shark across different areas of its range. Megalodon ranged over many of the world's oceans between 15 and 3.6 million years ago. Scientists commonly use megalodon teeth to estimate the animal's overall length, working on the assumption that its teeth size is proportional to its overall size, in a manner similar to today's great white shark, the white pointer, carcharias. With white pointers commonly reaching lengths of 7 metres or 21 feet, it would suggest that megalodon could reach lengths between 15 and 20 metres. That's 50 to 60 feet. Now, a report in the Journal Historical Biology suggests a correlation between geographic location and teeth and hence body size. Previously, smaller megalodon teeth were thought to suggest what may have been a shark nursery location containing smaller, younger megalodons but by following a geography-driven ecological pattern known as Bergman's Rule, which states that larger animals thrive in cooler climates because their increased size helps them retain heat more efficiently compared to animals with smaller bodies, the authors say the so-called megalodon shark nursery areas, which were located in equatorial waters, weren't nurseries after all. Paleontologists have discovered the fossilised remains of a new species of ankylosaur-armoured dinosaur in China. Yuji-saurus was about 2 to 3 metres long, had a heavy build, distinctive spiked armour and unique skull features surrounding its cranium. The discovery, reported in the journal eLife, dates back to the early Jurassic between 192 and 174 million years ago in China's Yunnan province. The tacklike like herbivore represents the earliest well preserved armoured dinosaur species ever found in Asia. Over the 2020 2021 financial year, the Australian Cyber Security Centre received over 67,500 cybercrime reports. That's an increase of nearly 13% over the previous financial year. The increase in volume of cybercrime reporting equates to one report of a cyber attack every eight minutes, compared to one every ten minutes during the previous financial year. Protecting yourself, your family and your business needs to be a priority for everyone. With important advice on what to do, we're joined by technology editor Alex Sahar of royt from ITY.com.
6: People's accounts being hacked, whether it's Netflix or something else, can happen when people's usernames and passwords are exposed on the internet through various companies having their databases hacked and then leaked. And now this can be leaked onto Pastebin or onto the dark web. And there's a great website called com. Now the word pwned is spelled like the word owned, O-W-N-E-D, but the letter O is actually a letter P. So haveibeenpwned.com. And if you type your email address in there, you will see if your email address and password has been exposed in various leaks. Now mine has been exposed about 13 times and it lists usually which of the services have been hacked, be it Canva or Adobe or MyFitnessPal or Gorka. There's a range of them over the years. And uh, some of them are actually just dumps where nobody quite knows where the information has come from your username and password that was in that particular dump has been leaked. And the services such as 1Password and other password management software, including iCloud Keychain in Apple devices, it can tell you, it can say, hey, we've seen this password appear in a password leak. And what the bad guys will do is they will try that username and password on various sites to see if it unlocks and opens up any of those particular services. And what the hackers can then try and do is to change the password to lock you out and often people are using two-factor authentication sent via sms as a way of guaranteeing that the message only comes to you but it is possible not for the average person but it is possible for these hackers to intercept sms messages and to be able to then verify that they are you when, of course, they're not you, and then taking control of your accounts. And what some of these hackers will do is try to do a thing called SIM jacking, where they will actually take control of your phone number. They'll switch it across to a different SIM, a physical SIM or an eSIM. And then when you get some of these SMS requests, they get it instead of you, and your phone says no service. So what People are now transitioning to is either using the mobile authentication apps, be it Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator, which will like those little RSA pocket fobs that attach to your keychain. They'll generate a dongles. code every thirty. The dongles, yeah, they'll generate a co- code every thirty seconds, and you've got to type that code in. But there's actually another form of dongle which is even more secure, and one of the companies is called Ubico, and they've got a thing called YubiKey. You could actually physically plug that dongle into the USB port, be it USB A, Lightning. Or USB-C of your computer, your Mac, your iPad, your iPhone, or your Android phone. And you need to have the username, the password, and that physical dongle plugged in. Now, of course, if you lose that dongle, Now, if it's stolen from you for the purposes of hacking into you, then obviously that's a bad thing. And that's why it's important to make sure that every single service you have uses a completely different password. You need to try and make those passwords as long and as complicated as possible. If you are given the ability to have a 20-letter password, then it's much better than having a 6 or an 8-character password like a lot of people have used in the past and often if I'm setting something up for people with the Channel 9, Channel 7, ABC, SBS or Channel 10 you know, catch up TV services I'll use something sort of simple but certainly when it comes to more complicated accounts like your Dropbox or your Gmail or um, other online services that you use and definitely also things like social media you should see if there is a two factor authentication system in place and if it's possible to use either one of those physical dongles or to use a mobile authentication Communication app that generates this code, that is a lot safer than using the SMS system where they send you a code because people's phones have been hijacked, simjacking as they call it. And that even happened to Jack Dorsey, the uh, CEO, now former CEO of Twitter, where his own account was uh, on Twitter was attacked and taken over. And of course, they got it back for him. He's the boss or was the boss. But uh, if it can happen to the CEO of a major tech company. It can certainly happen to anybody. And that's why it's so important to have different passwords for everything so that if one service is hacked and
0: that password then has to be changed, you know that all your other services are secure. That's Alex Sahar of royt from ity.com.